Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, why was contracting and development of the ArriveCan app so badly botched by the federal government? We look for answers on this growing boondoggle. And why has Canada's ban on foreign buyers not made homes more affordable? Plus, Rob Fay drops by as we look at the highs and lows of this year's Super Bowl. And why is quiet, leafy suburban Richmond looking to open a safe injection site? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Remember that Arrive Can app? Well, that nifty app that allowed you to get across the border sure has cost you a lot of money. Canada's Auditor General has found that those involved in contracting, developing, and implementing the uh, Arrive Can application showed a, quote, glaring disregard for basic management practices. According to Auditor General Karen Hogan, Canadians ultimately paid too much for the application. There's plenty of uh, blame to go around to various federal departments. That includes the Canadian Border Services Agency, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and the Public Services and Procurement Canada as well. Now, the report says that the cost of the app was at $59.5 million, more than the estimated $54 million. But the true cost, get this, was impossible to calculate because of CBSA's poor financial record keeping. Now, in examining the paperwork connected to the border app, um, uh, Ms. Hogan's team of investigators found that CBSA heavily relied on external help, which increased the cost far beyond the initial contract, which was in April of 2020, which was valued at, get this, $2.35 million. So from $2.35 million, we've gone to $59.5 million. Here's Auditor General Karen Hogan expressing her disappointment in the findings. I have to say that I am deeply concerned by what this audit didn't find. We didn't find records to accurately show how much was spent on what, who did the work, or how and why contracting decisions were made. And that paper trail should have existed. Overall, this audit shows a glaring disregard for basic management and contracting practices throughout ArriveCAN's development and implementation. That was Auditor General Karen Hogan speaking earlier today uh, on her report on the Arrive Can app. Well, let's go to the Globe and Mail's Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief, Bill Curry, who has been following this story for many, many months now. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for the invite. Lots to talk about here. Uh, were you expecting uh, such a, a damning report yourself? I know you've followed this story for a while now. Were you expecting uh, the words to be this strong? Um, well, it's possible. I mean, we've certainly had a lot of uh, public hearings to follow in Ottawa lately, so there's definitely a lot of smoke. So I guess not terribly surprising, but uh, I think that the the strength of uh, Auditor General Karen Hogan's words were, uh, I guess, um, I think certainly uh, noteworthy, especially when she was talking about, you know, she's been an auditor for decades. She's been the Auditor General for about four years now. And she's never seen anything like this in terms of like just the lack of basics when it comes to paperwork and accounting to make sure that if you're going to pay an invoice, 
You actually have an invoice that describes what it is that you're paying for. That kind of thing was missing, and she was very concerned about that, so that really jumped in. Was there any uh, sense of why it was uh, so poorly managed, as you said? She referred to it as a glaring disregard for basic management practices. Any sense of why uh, it, it was so badly done? Not really, and that perhaps is probably one of the frustrating parts about this report, is we're still, we're still not getting the whole story here. Is this just um, incompetence? people or is it something more serious like we we do know the rcmp is poking around on the fringes of this it's they've said they're not investigating arrive can per se but there's some other allegations that uh, past contractors have made about some of the same people and the same uh contractors and so the rcmp is looking around to that so um is this something more serious the auditor general when we asked her that question she said well, you know, that's my, my area of expertise. If the RCMP wants to dig around it and see if there is criminality in all of this, then that's up to them. But, but she didn't uh, go down that road to say one way or the other whether she thought this was criminal. Was there not a, a point that initially they thought the cost of this app would have been about $2.5 million or roughly in that range? Uh, instead of what we see now, uh, according to the report, the cost of the app is at $59.5 million? Yeah, or even last two, at times the CBSA had said the original cost was $80,000. So their explanation on this has been that, if you recall, during the pandemic, um, the federal cabinet through orders and council kept changing all the rules at the border, and every time the rules at the border were changed, it required the app to be updated. And that is their rationale for why these costs escalated so much, but... Um, you know, the Auditor General is not buying that. She says, there's, there's no, you can't use the pandemic as an excuse for this. She says, you know, there just simply was not enough checking to find out, you know, sure, maybe in the, in the heat of the moment, the very start of the pandemic, April 2022, 20, sorry, 2020, maybe, yes, you did need to uh, buy some high-priced consultants to get this out the door. But at a certain point, she said, these kind of contracts should have some kind of an escape clause where you can go back and check you know, do we still need these people? Um, she points out that the federal government IT workers are a lot less expensive than uh, outside consultants. So, so there could have been avenues to save money. And yet what she found is that um, instead what they actually did was they went back to the GC Strategies, which was the main private company that got the first uh, few um, in, um, sole source contracts to work on this. And, and rather than put it back in-house or have a fully public competition, she says what they did is they actually brought GC Strategies in and they were involved in writing what would be a public bid for a $25 million contract. And it was so narrowly worded that only GC Strategies applied and they got that contract. So she says that raises a lot of issues for her. And as GC Strategies that you know of done uh, technical work like this, high-tech work, developing apps in the past? Well, and that's, a, that's an un, another unusual part of the story is Luminous GC Strategies. They're getting millions and millions of dollars from federal departments all across the federal government here. And um, after our reporting, uh, the principals were called to committee and we got to learn a little bit more about their business. And GC Strategies is just two people, uh, Christian First and Darren McDonald. They do not have an office. They work, uh, they work from home and they do not do any IT work themselves. They essentially have carved out a niche where they win contracts, win large contracts, 
and then they find subcontractors to do the work. And so that kind of raises questions as to whether that's the most efficient way to do it, especially after they said that they pay themselves 15 to 30 percent of the total value of contracts. So, you know, off of 19 million, they're getting up to 30 percent of that just for the two of them. So, a lot of money going to these two gentlemen. And the second place company, Dalian, is also a company with two people that does a similar business. So, uh, a lot of questions through all of this about the structure of uh, using middlemen essentially uh, as go-betweens to find IT workers instead of hiring the IT workers themselves. And I think as a result of that, there's going to be some changes in the way the federal government uh, hires IT help. And has there been any uh, public information that points to whether GC strategies and their principles or, or the other company you mentioned have had any uh, connection to the uh, federal government, the federal Liberal Party at all? No, at the moment, this seems to be largely an issue about public servants and private contractors. Um, there's no real um, allegation that liberal ministers or politicians are involved at this stage. Uh, what have been the, what's uh, the political fallout been like today with this report? Well, Pierre Polyev really jumped on this because it was his motion back in November 2022 that called for this report. Um, it passed in Parliament with the, over the objections of uh, Liberal MPs and Green Party MPs. So uh, he says essentially that this confirms his concerns that, uh, in his view, the Liberal government is not uh, careful with tax dollars, that, you know, to spend $60 billion on an app that had a lot of problems, including sending 10,000 people into quarantine at the risk of high, high uh, fines. It was not warranted by the facts. You know, there's a lot of issues with this app uh, uh, when, you know, when it was in place. So um, he also raises a lot of questions about the contractors. There's, there's related hearings that are going on at the Government Operations Committee as well, and, and there's some questions as to where that's going to go now because um, uh, while this has all been going on, the Canada Border Services Agency has been doing its own internal report uh, and investigation, and they've kind of come up with a preliminary report that they gave to some of the MPs on the committee, and just last week was pretty dramatic. The some of the three of the parties involved were so alarmed by what they read in this thing, uh, which we have not seen, that they essentially uh, suspended hearings, and they're kind of debating whether they should still be having public hearings if there's an ongoing internal review and a, what it sounds like a police investigation where potentially charges are being contemplated. So that's kind of the big debate now. Conservatives view this as like a liberal cover-up. Uh, liberals claim that they're being responsible and they don't want to interfere with uh, a serious investigation. So that's kind of like the next uh, the next step in terms of Parliament, uh, what it does with this information and then where the two sides are at. So needless to say, uh, this is not ending anytime soon. There's still a lot that's going to go. And this, this story, certainly, uh, there'll be a lot more coming uh, in the months ahead. Absolutely, yeah. No. Want to find out what it, the, the CBSA finds? Um, we'll see if the RCMP does anything, and there could be some more. Uh, I think it's likely there'll be more some committee hearings and documents and that kind of thing. Bill, thank you for your time. All right, thanks a lot. Welcome back to the show. The Kansas City Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 in overtime in a Super Bowl unlike any other. Uh, it was fabulous to watch. Uh, some have argued it's probably one of the best Super Bowls ever uh, and lots of drama behind the scenes as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this weekend's game is Rob Fay, a weekend morning host of CKNW and, of course, a longtime sportscaster. Rob, welcome. 
you might be right with best ever. I was hanging yeah. off the edge of my seat that entire second half and in overtime. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a bit depressed. I'm a 49ers guy. <laughs> and uh, something about it, uh, right to the end, I'm like, oh, I'm giving him too much time. I'm giving Mahomes too much time. And sure enough, he did what he usually does, right? You know, it's interesting. I thought he had a terrible first half. Mm-hmm. I thought he was out of sorts the whole time. But boy, I tell you what, the cream of the crop always seems to rise. Yes. And, you know, you give him a shot and then you give him another shot in overtime – Sooner or later, he's going to get you, and he did. Yeah, and there was so much, uh, I guess, first of all, it's in Vegas, so you get a bit more excitement. And then, of course, you have the uh, Taylor Swift uh, being there and all. (laughs) Oh, I was looking at the numbers. Taylor Swift was on TV for 53 seconds yesterday. But you admit it feels like she was... (laughs) She was on every third minute or something like that. Well, she wasn't on a lot in the first half. No. But as soon as Kansas City started to get their juju, you knew she was going to be on. So it seemed like every first down they were checking in to make sure she was enjoying the game still. Exactly. Now, uh, at the end of the game, of course, uh, Taylor Swift was on the the grounds there uh, to see her boyfriend there, Mr. Kelsey. Uh, Our technical producer and Swifty correspondent, Talia Miller, watched the game. Or watched Taylor, I don't know. But she did record herself. Uh, just as I guess uh, they won the game. Let's take a listen, Talia. Talia, I got to ask you: uh, Do you watch NFL prior to Taylor Swift's involvement? No. <laughs> Genius. Genius. <laughs> Honestly, no. Like, I mean, I air. My very first radio job was airing NFL games in the evening, uh-huh. and I would try to watch a little bit. But do I understand anything that's going on? Not no a clue. No, I have no idea. But you were at a you were at a, a Super Bowl party or a Taylor yes. Swift party. What would you call that? Oh, you know what? I would say it was a really good combo. Uh, we did our own little betting pool, all of us. So we had like. Um, you know, is the first play going to be a run or a pass? We're like, what's Taylor's outfit going to be? Is she going to be in all red or is she going to be in all black? Is there going to be a proposal? Like, so we called it at Super Bowl Sunday, Taylor's version. And Taylor's I had version. my shirt that said, like, go Taylor's boyfriend. I made some Rice Krispie squares in the shape of a football. Oh, wow. And everything. So honestly, it was a good time. I had a lot of fun watching her. What if there's a breakup? What are you folks going to do? I mean, you Swifties. Oh, we've been it. we've been through it already. We're going to get some great music out of her, <laughs> and it's going to be fantastic if that's the way it goes. <laughs> what did you call Travis Kelsey? Oh, I called him my stepdad. I was oh. like, "That's my stepdad. He won the Super Bowl. Congrats!" There you go. There you go. They're going to have the highest ratings ever. The previous record was 115 million just last year. Chiefs and Eagles. Mm-hmm. There's no way they don't beat that with the Taylor crowd. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, do you? They're already talking about Mahomes being the greatest of all time, but I'm like, wait a minute here. He's young, back to back. That's a tremendous accomplishment, of course. Uh, three Super Bowls now, uh, but he's not Tom Brady. He's, I, I would argue, anyway. I mean, where does he sit right now in his career, in your mind? Well, if you're judging solely on rings, he's got four more to get before he's Tom Brady. So it, it did put him in the conversation with the Joe Montanas of the world, the Troy Aikmans of the world. So he's there. He's in that conversation. But the problem is every generation wants to say that they had the greatest of all time, right? But yeah. the reality is, is there's a lot of tread left on that tire to get to Tom Brady, but he did something that nobody in 20 years has done, and that's go back-to-back. So they have a chance to three-peat, which has never been done in Super Bowl history. So he's in rare air now. I'm curious. Do you think we're ever going to get an NFL team in this country? No. 
Never. We'll get the we'll get the one offs. Like Buffalo will come to Toronto once every blue moon. But there would I, be a Toronto team. I I don't think so. I mean, there's so many cities. I think they would rather go to Mexico City. I think they'd rather go to London because they want to get their teeth globally. And I think right now they've already got Canada. Canada, they don't have to do anything in Canada to grab the crowd. We, we're yeah. already NFL fans. But I think they can extract Mexico. I think they can go abroad to Europe. And I think there's a whole boatload of money waiting for them there. Why is the NFL, why does it do so well? If you look at the top 100 watch shows probably this year or next last year, sorry. I think like 91 or 92 of them. Uh, are NFL games. Why is that? Oh, I think half of it is because what they've done on television. They, they've been able to spread out their brand over the course of the week. I mean, they've got Monday night football. They've got Thursday night football. Then, of course, they've got Sunday completely all to themselves. So the reality is, as they've sprinkled themselves throughout the week, that there's always something coming up. And I think they've done a tremendous job with their media. They've always been the top dog. I mean, football in the States, especially the southern states, mm-hmm. it's religion. But the way that they've been able to brand themselves across TV and the multimedia, there's nobody even close. Yeah, I was getting text messages from American friends, and it is. It's a very special day for up here as well, but Americans just take it to, to the next level. Now, uh, of course, a part of the Super Bowl uh, is is the halftime show. Uh, and this year it was Usher, and I was already uh, reading. They don't pay these performers. Yep. Uh, they will help with the production costs, but they were saying that Usher already got $53 million just in exposure for that um, uh, for the one uh, segment, uh, for the one show at halftime. Uh, our uh, producer, Stephen Chang, who's a big Usher fan, probably more Usher than football, uh, recorded himself watching when Usher arrived. Let's take a listen. <laughs> oh, my God! Yes! Stephen, did you oh watch the God. actual football game? I do have to ask you, did you watch actually watch the game? What football game? <laughs> no, did you like remotely pay attention to the actual game? Uh, so here's the thing. We had it on the background for a little bit, but the whole time we were just like, where's Usher? When's he coming? So we didn't really, uh, we didn't pay attention to that much until my stepfather came onto the stage. And then that's when we paid full 100% attention uh-huh. while eating wings. While eating wings. We were watching Usher. Did you watch the game to the end? No. (laughs) Steven, even I did that. Hey, 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 hey. No, I I only wanted to see Usher. Once that halftime show ended, I'm sorry. I had to go. (laughs) So wait a minute. Taylor Swift was on camera for 53 seconds. What was more, Taylor Swift on camera or Steven squealing? That is an unbelievable amount of high-pitched squealing from Steven during the halftime show. Oh, absolutely. That's Steven, though. You don't even scream like that when you watch WrestleMania, Steven. Oh, you have no idea, Jazz. You have no idea. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Talia. Thank you, Steven. Thank you, Rob. My pleasure. Federal government extended for the foreign buyer ban on Canadian homes uh, to 2027. The announcement was made 
last week by Deputy Prime Minister Christia uh, Freeland. Now, under the ban, uh, which came into effect last year and was set to expire at the beginning of 2025, foreign commercial enterprises and people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents are prohibited from purchasing residential property uh, in Canada. Uh, Non-Canadians found in contravention of the ban would be fined up to $10,000 in order to uh, sell the property. Now, since that's brought in, the other question many people are asking is, well, that's all well and good. Many people are asking for that. That's popular. But why haven't prices dropped uh, in Canada and certainly here in Vancouver if we have a foreign buyer's tax and a ban on uh, uh, foreigners buying? Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the ban and, uh, and, and the foreign buyer's tax uh, is Andy Yan. He's an urban planner, associate professor in urban studies and director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chaz. Uh, I found this very interesting with this announcement that, of course, we're going to extend the foreign buyers ban. Um, but I think most people, when they see those headlines, they say, well, that's great. But how come I'm not seeing any impact on affordability or prices noticeably dropping? Why is that? Well, I think by itself, I think the foreign buyers ban isn't enough. That I think when we talk about the kind of changes we're going to need to increase affordability, it's going to be around housing supply, demand and finance. And that this is, this is only part of the solution, but yet at the same time, I think the way the ban was developed, I think it itself, um, I think, has limited effect. Uh, has it had an effect? That's an interesting question. I think that, you know, certainly, I think in the realm of the issue of affordability, I think there have been other factors that perhaps overwhelmed what it, what it, what it could have had an effect on to. Um, the fact that it was announced, I think, um, much later than when we first kind of noticed, you know, the possibility of foreign capital coming into, uh, coming into Canadian housing, that that's, that's also a big challenge. Because, of course, it's mixed into the fact that this is talking about foreign buyers as opposed to foreign money. And I think that this is really the kind of big challenge here in terms of dealing with just foreign money than it is with foreign buyers. So you think we need to be going further, not just the foreign buyers, but look at other uh, issues specifically around foreign capital coming into our country? Oh, I think very much so. I think that it's going into the question of foreign capital and then learning from what other countries do. And I think that in, in a way, it's really learning to say what a country like Singapore has done in terms of the effects of foreign, of, of, of foreign money coming in, foreign capital coming into their housing markets. And what? I think that it really comes to one simple packet, one simple message. And what did what did Singapore do? Well, I think that Singapore actually has a a, a stamp tax through which well, a, a tax on sales through which changes and increases depending upon whether you're a domestic Singaporean or a non-Singaporean that goes up at, depending on how many properties you own in Singapore. And the basic message for that is that there will not be free parking for people putting parking their money into local Singaporean real estate. Can you implement something like that here in British Columbia? Our systems are so different from a city-state like Singapore. I think that that's going to be a question of adaptivity, of creativity, of really, I think this is where the provincial government will, would probably, well, the federal government would certainly have to work with the provincial government in terms of that in, in terms of that type of policy. But then it, I think it just really deals with the realities of how money flows around the world and lands in things like residential real estate. Um, it, I think in the 2021, uh, from the numbers that I'm looking at, Vancouver had the highest or largest proportion of non-resident ownership 
in urban Canada. It was about 4.3% in 2021, the highest in this country. Um, some would argue, look, th- that's not enough to have an impact. Should we uh, basically get rid of this foreign ban? Because the, the, the numbers weren't very big even when we d- decided to talk about this conversation, decided to have this conversation. 4.3% is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Well, that's the issue, Jazz, is that the devil's in the details, that when you actually just don't try to dilute it in terms of a, 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 a regional number and actually look at specific cities, you find that it actually jumps up to almost 10% in the city of Vancouver, 11% in the city of Richmond. So I think that to actually uh, understand that with those types of numbers, looking at a very high geographic scale, like a province or a region, it dilutes the effect of foreign buying. And I think that this is, I think, something that to be aware of, that, you know, a question about 4% is perhaps smaller, but it's certainly, um, certainly when we talk about 10% of, of residential real estate being owned by non non-resident uh non-resident occupants i think that that's a that's a that's a policy issue hmm. and, and the fact that we've extended this homeowners ban to 2027 uh do you think it needs to be made permanent i think that it needs to change i think that it needs to i think change with dare i say the principle of the fact that there will be no free parking for foreign money in canadian real estate and i think that it's going to take i think learning from policies whether they come in from Singapore, from Australia, New Zealand, or or parts of the United States, that I think that we you know we take the best practices and 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 practice them here in Canada. Hmm. Uh, you you've used Singapore as an example. Uh, you've brought up Australia and New Zealand. Is Australia quite similar that they have this ban, but they also very much look at foreign capital as well moving to their country? They're certainly looking at foreign capital, but I think their approaches have been a bit different. That it has been, I think a realm of taxation for holding as opposed to just only transactions that I think that this is, I think, again, the kind of evolution of this kind of policy that we're going to need in a place like British Columbia. Are are other governments doing that beyond just Australia, New Zealand, you mentioned Singapore, but the the UK, France, the United States, other provincial governments Mm -hmm. uh, serious about this yet or even nationally in, in, in other G7 nations? I, I think so. I mean, I mean, even in even in Toronto, they've been actually talking about um, having a having a non-resident tax for uh, for residential properties. So I think that it it just kind of reflects the reality of how money from around the world are landing on local real estate and having effects on local housing markets. And trying to I think right the scale, balance out the scale for those who are living here on local incomes. Uh, your thoughts, when you look at your crystal ball here, yes, uh, real estate has slowed down a little bit, the sales and uh, of real estate because of higher interest rates, but those are going to come down to a to a lower level, either starting mid-year, but certainly by next year we're expecting changes. Do you see uh, not a, a massive increase, or do you see attempts of more capital being tried, people trying to move capital through Canada uh, because of that? Do you see an increase over the next year or so? That's a possibility, but I think the interesting thing are, are say what's going, what's happening in some of these home countries. That I think was certainly what's happening in China, um, as one of the kind of major sources of global capital in Canadian real estate. I think the kind of major domestic changes that are happening in China, I think, kind of put in some interesting questions. I think the changes domestically when it comes to lending rules. Um, a lot of my, um, you know, part of my major research was actually finding that it's not only about foreign capital, but it's foreign capital um, magnified by our lending 
institutions that I think that it's going to be interesting to watch if, if when interest rates lower. But yet, I think lending lending um, guidelines have actually been strengthened in terms of who banks can lend to in Canada. So it's going to be some pretty interesting things to watch. But one should note uh, what Sam Cooper had discovered uh, last week in terms of the about the prevalence of, of fraud in terms of lending. So I think that it's, it's always an interesting subject matter to look at. I look at places like Oak Ridge, uh, many high-profile developments in the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. In many cases, when I lived in China, you you could go to a real estate office, uh, much like here in Vancouver, mm-hmm. let's say at a shopping mall, and you'd see condos for sale in Vancouver, in Toronto, even in some mm-hmm. cases Calgary. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think we need need to actually look at even marketing of, of, of some of these facilities in foreign countries? Well, I think the marketing is probably an indicator of where those where, where, where the demand is, and I think that it is. I mean, it's 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 something to observe. I think that you know to kind of see how local local Vancouver real estate is marketed abroad, in actually in certain cases, very elaborate marketing. Uh, marketing um, displays that I think it illustrates the kind of global demand for for residential real estate in Vancouver. It's just that I think that it shouldn't be, I think, a freehold for those who live globally but don't necessarily live here glo- locally. Andy, as always, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Jazz. Let's talk about uh, BC lands. Uh, of course, uh, you've been hearing a lot uh, in the news uh, recently about the uh, Ministry of Waterlands and Resource Stewardship. Nathan Cullen is the minister there. Uh, they are taking, uh, they're consulting presently with uh, industry stakeholders in regards to the Land Act, and they are receiving submissions um, uh, on proposed amendments to the Land Act until March of March 31st. Uh, at its core, uh, many people have been wondering and asking, will changes to the Land Act mean First Nations will have veto power over potential projects and how that land uh, is used. The minister says it does not. It's about modernizing uh, the Land Act. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this conversation is Nathan Cullen, BC's Minister of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Of course, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This is a very important conversation. Walk me through what you believe you've been trying to do and uh, and what other folks have said is, is essentially handing over veto power to First Nations communities. Right. So even, even in the asking of that question, Jazz, I hear, I hear how it, it gone early. We have, um, we passed the Declaration Act, what's called the Declaration Act, a bunch of years ago in the legislature unanimously. It was very good. And in it, it's, uh, there's two parts that say the province, if it's aligned uh, with First Nations on a particular project or an issue, can enter into an agreement, right? Mm-hmm. And in, by doing that, would increase certainty and stability, predictability for investment and all sorts of positive things for everybody. We have two of these so far. Both are in the northwest of BC and Taltan territory. Both are connected to mining projects, two different mining projects. They're called Section 6 and 7 Agreements. Very positive. Uh, BC saw alignment with what Taltan wanted to do. The companies were very interested. And then we walk through the process together, BC and the First Nation, looking at environmental assessments, etc. What we're proposing in the Land Act is, is simply that, to put into law to change the Land Act, which is a very old piece of legislation. It was written in the 1850s. To change it to say, Governments are allowed to enter these agreements with lots of public consultation, etc. If our interests are aligned and we can actually land a deal to bring greater certainty. What it doesn't do is change the 95 million hectares that we call crown land, public lands, 
and any of the permits that exist on those lands right now, hunting, fishing, backcountry, etc. What do you mean when you say you're in alignment? Uh, one would argue any project you would be in alignment with if, if it brings, you know, if, if, it, if it provides a potential economic upliftment for a region, uh, as long as it, uh, you know, protects the land, air, water, soil, meets the environmental and vigorous environmental laws that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. Why do you need this? If you, if, you, if, if you already have alignment anyway, why does this, this need to be codified into language, into law? No, I mean, the government's going to, every government's going to get pitched on proposals. Some of them, like you say, uh, look like they'd be really good. You go through the whole environmental assessment, good jobs, etc. There's other projects where you sit back and say, is this to the benefit of the province? Or can they not contain the environmental impact? Is it going to ruin our salmon population? So you're always, every project that comes forward, you, you've got to weigh them out individually. And as a, as a province, we got to make the determination at the end of the public benefit. Where we've had trouble and lost a lot of court cases is that when First Nations challenge us and say, there's some constitutional obligations you have with us, you didn't engage with us properly, et cetera, et cetera. Lawyers fight it out. We all spend millions of dollars. We lose. Uncertainty goes up. Investment goes away. And so we learned through the Declaration Act, First Nations are extending a hand and saying there's lots of places where we have that mutual benefit. If we could come to agreement, just as the project's being proposed, there's a mine in McLeod Lake, First Nations. They've already come to an agreement together uh, to start the process together. The chances for this project getting off the ground are way, way higher and all the jobs that come with it. So it's, it's, a, it's exactly what industry's been looking for. It's a lot what First Nations have been looking for. And I would say that the general public is well served when we're able to lift a project up, do it together, walk the path together, and not end up in court, not up in all the conflicts that we've seen in BC over the years. So if, if a proponent were to come and bring to you a, a natural resource project, whether it be forestry, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will look at it and certainly lots of consultation required with First Nations and non-First Nations communities, but it meets the general standard, still more com- consultation to do. Um, but you go through an environmental process. Let's say they were able to meet all those requirements, but First Nations at the end of the day mm-hmm. had some mm-hmm. concerns would yeah. you then still move ahead with that project, even though it meets your environmental standards of the land? Uh, it is supported by non-First Nations communities. Uh, yeah, yeah. So how would that project move forward if, 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 if let's just say, electric body, in this case, First Nations community, yeah. does oppose it? Does that mean yeah. that project doesn't have any chance of moving forward? No. BC would retain the authorities that we have under the Land Act, under the Environmental Assessment Act, if we approve a project. What I would say, though... I'm I'm getting, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the mining industry, just for an example. Mm -hmm. I can't think of the last time a project came to us as a government that did not have, at the beginning of it, the proponent saying, here is our current agreement with local First Nations. Like, this is our relationship right now. Versus 20, 25 years ago, Jazz, where I would start in this business, Mm -hmm. I would see projects come forward and I'd say, hey, local jobs, the environment, First Nations, how we doing? And they'd say, "It, it doesn't matter. We don't need a relationship with the local community. That's not important. All we need is to lobby government and go through the process to get our project off the ground. I think the natural evolution of a better industrial strategy is to say when it benefits everybody, it truly benefits everybody. When there's a relationship and we can come to an agreement, even before the project's been fully proposed, now we're talking all the time. We're not duplicating things. A lot of projects right now have to do one environmental assessment with us 
then another one with First Nations doing the same studies. It takes way longer. You know the permitting challenges we have. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing in the agreements that we've signed faster permits, way more durable agreements. And the investment community, frankly, loves it because they're looking at it and saying, we're not likely to see this project end up in court and delays. We're not likely to see conflict on this project in the evening news, just when they're cutting the ribbon and a bunch of people are going to work in a good way. That's, that's the vision for this. We, what we got to be careful of, I would argue, is the, the fear-mongering and the stuff of saying 5% have control and veto over 95% of the population. That's frankly wrong. It's dangerous and damaging, and we can do better. And, and people saying it, who you know and I know, should know better because it doesn't work for them other than trying to pander to one particular group. Now, uh, Vancouver-based law firm Macmillan LLP does a lot of work in the resource sector. In their own commentary mm-hmm. on their website, mm-hmm. it did say, make no mistake, the subject matter of the consultation is unprecedented and of profound importance to any company that requires authorization to use Crown land in BC. These include things like grazing leases, mining leases, licenses mm-hmm. of occupation, dock permits, rights of way, and so on. Yeah. Uh, these are not, you know, this law firm, one would argue, is not one of those people that is trying to politicize this, but this mm-hmm. is the kind of advice they're going to give to their clients. Ah. If you were to sit with them, what, what would you say to them uh, besides, hey, you're wrong, your assessment is wrong, here's why? Well, I would start there. I'd say your assessment is wrong, you're giving bad advice to your clients, but that's your business. You can do what you wish. I have a whole suite of lawyers <laughs> and law firms <laughs> that provide exactly the opposite advice. And I haven't heard, to be fair, Jeff, I haven't heard a whole chorus of industry and serious uh, commentators on what is being proposed mm-hmm. echo any of those sentiments. I've heard it from one voice, and that's fine. They can have that one person making one voice. What I would suggest is that this does not affect grazing leases because it doesn't. <laughs> this does not affect backcountry leases because it doesn't. The, the suggestion otherwise is just wrong. So where I will take full ownership and responsibility is the way that this got started. We did our normal, we've amended the Forestry Act, the Emergencies Act, the Child and Family, to do exactly this. But when we did those before, we put out for comment, we talked to stakeholders, and we moved through hearing those comments. What I, the mistake I made is that when we did this, because it's the Lands Act, it's so much the foundation of some big questions around reconciliation in our province that we needed to do more. So that's what we're doing now. We've reset the consultation. I've spoken to hundreds of organizations, thousands of individuals. We're doing it, all comers. Anyone wants to come talk to us? We're happy to walk them through what the proposal actually does and doesn't do. And I'm not going to speak for any of them, Jess, but mm-hmm. many of them are saying, well, if this is all it does, then let's get on with it. And can we see it in writing? And it's like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> we'll put it in writing. We'll show it to you. We'll do everything we can to be very clear on what this is. But again, there are, there are those that just wish reconciliation wasn't a thing. Yeah that the Constitution rights that are there weren't there, but they are. So let's just walk together. Let's figure out how we can work together to make BC a better place. So I want to ask you this question again. So this piece of legislation this uh-huh. the, does not give First Nations veto power, as you no. say, a small portion of the population, 5%. This, does, in your mind, does not give First Nations veto power over projects. Happily, not just in my mind, but in law and according to the First Nations Leadership Council which represents the vast majority of First Nations in BC, have said in a public letter, this proposal does not give First Nations veto power. So if you don't believe me, believe the First Nations, 
believe lawyers that work on this, and believe the industry that phoned me. I just sat with another group this afternoon on a Zoom call saying, how do we get one of these agreements for our project? And I'm saying, well, tell the people keep dog whistling to stop it so that we can actually have a good conversation about the merits of this. And then we can talk about landing a Section 7 agreement with you guys because they're all looking at the Northwest. They're looking at the two projects that have gotten off the ground in terms of their assessment. Companies happy, First Nations happy, local communities happy. Is this not what we want, right? Is this not the dream? Let's stop with the other nonsense and the fear-mongering. We can do better. Let's work together. And that's exactly what these amendments allow us to do. Mr. Thank you for your time. But unfortunately, uh, I can guarantee you the dog whistling won't stop. It is an election year. That's for sure. <laughs> it is an election year. I did read that somewhere in the paper. <laughs> Appreciate it. It'll Jeff. get a little louder. Thanks so much, Minister. Uh, right on. Well, Richmond City Council is expected to make a decision tonight on whether to request setting up a safe consumption site near the city's hospital. Uh, The council meeting tonight will revisit the motion in more detail. Uh, It was originally brought forward on February 5th uh, to see if there would be public support and to do more research in regards to a consumption site. Well, since then, thousands of people have signed a petition saying they do not want to see a safe consumption site uh, in that city. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Alexa Liu, who is a Richmond City Councillor. Alexa, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, walk me through the decision to explore the idea of a safe injection site. Richmond isn't usually the community you think of about the society being looked at. No, it's, it's typically not. Um, and actually, what this motion is doing is it's getting staff to do the analysis of what it is we actually need and to whether or not a safe in consumption site, so that includes inhalation and injection, however people are taking their drugs, uh, would be appropriate. And it specifies within the Richmond Hospital precinct. So that being said, is we actually did have Dr. Dawar, who is our public health officer, come and speak to us back in the summer because the concern of people's health and the rise in deaths coming from uh, poison drugs really is a concern for everyone. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody wants to see anybody uh, dying because of their addiction. And so we did bring her forward to come and talk to us back in the summer mm-hmm. and find out more of what we could do. How pronounced is the uh, the challenge in Richmond uh, in regards to this issue? You know, generally, when you think of drug use, you think of open air use, unsafe use. Um, uh, one would argue in Richmond, a lot of it is is behind closed doors. But give me a sense of how significant the challenge is uh, presently when it comes to drug use in Richmond. Uh, a lot of it is behind closed doors. Um, so last year, the numbers that we were given was there was twenty seven deaths in Richmond. Um, Seven of them happened in residences. Six of them happened in, um, like, industrial settings, like at work, Mm -hmm. workplace accidents. And then the remainder, so 14, were um, outside, if you will. And so, yeah, what can we do? How can we make it safer? If there was a safe place to go, would people go to that place to do their drugs or to at least get them tested? There's been a, uh, a, a petition uh, going around the community uh, opposed to the idea of a safe injection site. Uh, many residents have said they don't wish uh, to uh, have such a consumption site opened. Uh, how big of an opposition are you expecting to this to, to a safe injection site? 
Uh, we're expecting a huge opposition to this, actually. So, and then what? One of the things that was brought up is there's a difference between a safe consumption site and an overdose prevention site. So, um, there's for the layperson, the overdose prevention site is peer-led, which means you're doing drugs with your friends, and hopefully one of them will give you naloxone if you start uh, going down. The safe consumption site is uh, run and operated by medical health professionals who are there. And then there's also the wraparound services. So then if you're ready to get out of drug consumption, that then you can, uh, it could be the off-ramp for you to get out. So there's a lot of confusion on that. Um, but realistically, when Dr. Dower came and spoke to us back in the summer, she brought numbers with her. She said basically Richmond is 1% of the drug use in BC and 12% of the population. She said our numbers just don't play out to have a safe consumption site. Uh, there's already some treatment sites in Richmond or, or places where people can go and do their drugs. And in some of our supportive housing, there are um, spaces where people can be watched while they're, they're doing their drugs to ensure that they don't come. Do you think at this point, I mean, the opposition, I think the signatures uh, from residents uh, through an online website had reached 17,000, perhaps even higher now. Uh, this is quite significant in regards to opposition. Do you think that's going to be a tough one, even if councillors wanted to move forward to something like this, that the opposition is so strong that you, you just couldn't really consider it just because there's such strong local opposition to a site? Well, I think we have to listen to our constituents and what they want. That being said, um, you know, Dr. Dower wrote us a letter and she said what we should be doing is supporting the recommended analysis in order to identify a range of solutions that may be appropriate to our local context. She said we should be exploring the feasibility, which means will it work, the acceptability, so will they come? So will the people who are addicted, will they come even to where we're suggesting it's going to be? And then funding models, they're important and they should be undertaken in partnership with the clients, service providers, and relevant public sector partners. So if it fails tonight, I'll be putting that one forward to say, hey, let's identify the range of solutions. What more can we be doing? So what more can we be doing to support people with addiction? What more can we be doing to prevent people from even becoming addicted? Right now, there's a two-year waiting list to see a psychiatrist in Richmond. That's not okay. People have already stepped forward looking for help, and then you push them away saying, well, if there's a two-year waiting list, well, in that time, that's when perhaps they're getting addicted and things are happening. What else can we do in terms of increasing the opportunities for treatment for people who are ready for, uh, to, get, to get away from drugs and to, to change their life? What are we doing to support that? So that's also what we need to be doing. So the one thing saying, oh, the one hail thing that we should be putting out in front of everyone being a safe consumption site, is that truly what our community needs? I don't think so, and there's a lot of people in the community who don't think so. Those other items, prevention, treatment, and harm reduction, I think those pieces are important to the community in general. Nobody wants to see anybody's child die from an addiction. That being said, they don't necessarily want um, a safe consumption site centralized because we've seen you know, pictures from Vancouver, from Yale Town, we've seen neighborhoods torn apart. We've seen the drug dealers move in because that's where the people are going to do the drugs. So guess where the people selling the drugs show up? So, you know, is there a better model? There are many other supports that we could put in here in Richmond. 
what this do will do, though, is it does get us talking about it. It does get us talking about um, the importance of it and that is it health issue. And it does show our willingness to start working more deeply with Vancouver Coastal Health to do something more. Uh, generally, you know, when we when we talk about this this topic, you think in the context of Vancouver, you think in the context of Surrey, perhaps two very large communities, uh, different issues. But at, at its core, these this is where the the conversation generally occurs. Do you think other suburbs will be looking at this, having the same conversation as Richmond is at this point in regards to safe injection sites, just because of just a, how widespread the issue is? Is is that coming uh, from let's say quiet leafy suburbia? I think everyone's concerned about what's happening. There are people dying. Everybody knows somebody that's lost somebody to this drug crisis, to this drug poisoning epidemic that seems to be happening. And, you know, so many people die every year and somehow the numbers of users seem to get backfilled and more people are coming. So I think it's a concern for everyone. So whether the safe in consumption site is the, the answer or an answer, there's, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of desire amongst people and communities to um, increase supports, help people through addiction, and to help people prevent the prevention piece as well, prevent people from getting addicted in the first place. Alexa, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.